Hey, this is Don Shrum. Welcome to my pastor's Bible study this last two weeks of October and the first week of November uh, for 2022. Just as I get my uh, feet under me as interim pastor, I wanted to do this study on the emergence of Israel. Uh, this first week about our thinking and using models uh, to try to figure out what happened then because that's how we get informed about our story, which in turn shapes us. Uh, so thanks for tuning in. And you'll find elsewhere here the two-page handout I have. Look for it. It's called Emergence of Israel. Thanks for tuning in. Uh, welcome, and let's pray. Thank you, God, for this morning. Open up your word that we might be fed anew, even from some very old stories. Amen. All right, like I was mentioning, folks, there's a handout here up on the table if you want to grab one of those yellow handouts so you know where we're going. I think in three weeks we can get through the front and back of this. That's my goal. Uh, we are talking about stories, and as we exit Exodus, I want us to visit a really important part that just doesn't get talked about much. This, none of the thought you're going to read today is older than, is newer rather than 30 years. It was back in seminary days but I'm always surprised how few people seem to know about it. And like I said, uh, <laughs> if we are the ones laying on the couch doing narrative therapy, it really matters as teachers and leaders that we think about and, and visit critically what's the story we're telling. You might, and even today was a hint about the inerrancy of scripture. Um, how does scripture do what it does? Folks, there's a yellow handout you want to grab and come sit up front or in the back is fine too. <laughs> You're more comfortable sitting in the back. This is thrilling to have so many people here. I, I love this. Yes. Yes. Oh, good. So inerrancy, and this is where we're starting here. We're on, we're on 1A, really. Uh, our church, and by our church, I mean the 2 million. Okay, it's only 1.8 million by now. Presbyterians in our country. Our official stance is that Scripture is unique and authoritative. That's the words we choose that are in direct contradistinction to inerrant, which means perfect. Or infallible, meaning there's nothing you could find wrong with this. As someone, as any student of Hebrew or Greek would tell you regarding inerrancy, the first thing they'd say is, what scripture are you talking about? There is no original text. This is upsetting, I know, darn it. But this is where we got to start. Some people say regarding infallibility or inerrancy. I'm using those interchangeably. They're not quite the same, but close enough. That, well, we know there's problems with translations, but the original text is perfect because God is perfect. Because uh, to which point we'd say there is no original text. Uh, this is what, how they say it. Ur is the name, where the, the city where Abraham was from. You go back to Genesis in his journeys. He began from Ur and then he came this way to populate us. Anyway, there is no Ur text. There's no origin texts. If you have a study Bible, what you're going to find dozens, hundreds of times, depending on it, is footnotes saying, other ancient manuscripts read. That's because the people who know and love the Bible best, who spend entire careers not horsing around with pastoral counseling or theology or music, whatever, is uh, they say, yeah, we don't know. We don't know. And so we'll put the most reliable reading 
uh, up front, and then because we argue about the others in the footnotes. Um, so that's why I love and approve of any use of Bible helps a study Bible. It reminds us uh, the canon. The canon is, an, uh, is a question, not an answer. This is what is authoritative. Uh, we're still working on that. And so you'll have people with great cases arguing about what is the Bible. What does the text say? There's something like 6,000, I hope that's not too disappointing for you, 6,000 variants in scripture where people read and say, uh, uh. most of those are Old Testament. That's because three quarters of the Bible is Old Testament. And because if you know this, oh, this is taking too long. If you know Hebrew, uh, Hebrew doesn't have uh, the vowels. It only has the consonants. That's the way they printed it. What a horrible idea. You've got to go through and later on add what the vowel sounds are. And there's a couple signs they have for those. Those didn't get written in the original text. So when they look at three letters A, that could be about four different words, depending on context, depending on the chicken scratch. So I don't think anyone who was studied scripture seriously, especially in the original languages like they make us in the PCUSA, can it land on inerrancy. Um, it's relatively meaningless. Our church says unique and authoritative, meaning there's nothing else like it. And authoritative, you can rely on it, or as I think of it, authoritative authoring. It creates a whole world. You can rely on it, and it'll, it'll guide you and write a new story um, for you. That's what it is to be a Christian. Uh, let's see. All right, do uh, we have any Bibles here? Come on, Bible study without a Bible. I'm turning, just for that, I'm going to make someone read it here at Genesis X. I'm turning to a couple texts, the Deuteronomy text, 26. Yeah, or if you got a phone, whip it up. Deuteronomy 26, 5b through 10. If we get down to, um, through Roman numeral 3 this morning, we're in great shape. And where, there's a clock right there. Oh, perfect, we're in great shape. Deut who's got Deuteronomy 26? Tim, do you have this? I know, I know, 26, it's going to, uh, <laughs> almost close. If there's anyone else doing the activity, could, could someone else look up Exodus 15? And I won't make you read the whole thing, but we'll know what the text is. These are two texts about the evolution of our traditions. Since there's no original text, why are there competing texts? If you've ever thought, wow, Old Testament is boring. It's redundant. We already heard this. It's because of this. Tim, do you have, uh, do you have 26, 5b through 10? That's it. Do you just start reading Deuteronomy 26, verse 5? I do. Uh, uh, starting with uh, verse 5. Then you shall declare before the Lord your God. Is that it? Yeah. Yeah. I'm just. Oh. Then you shall declare before the Lord your God, quote, my father was a wandering Aramean. 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 And he went down into Egypt with a few people and lived there and became a great nation, powerful and numerous. But the Egyptians mistreated us and made us suffer, subjecting us to harsh labor. Then we cried out to the Lord, the God of our ancestors, and the Lord heard our voice and saw our misery, toil, and oppression. So the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm with great terror and with signs and wonders. He brought us to this place and gave us this land, a land flowing with milk and honey. 
Beautiful. Okay. Who's got Exodus 15, 1 through 21? Then the Lord and the Israelites sang this song to the Lord. I will sing to the Lord, for he is highly exalted. Both horse and driver he has hurled into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my defense. He has become my salvation. He is my God, and I will praise him. My Father's God, and I will exalt him. I'm going to stop you there. Yep. This is just some of the earliest texts we have, because our tradition is written here. But we know it's an oral tradition as well. What gets retold? I was preaching on this just a couple of weeks ago, that the earliest traditions are often songs, poems, because they're memorable. And so that's the piece that Sarah was just reading. And then we have a story you'd tell your kids. that doesn't, It kind of sets off by itself in the text. What's going on? Well, I'll tell you. My father was a wandering Aramean. That's the, the kind of short version of how we got here, uh, what our start was. Um, as we do this emergence, I'm calling this the emergence of Israel. How did we get to be a country, a nation, kings, etc.? Um, here's the things I'm concerned with. <laughs> Theoretical adequacy. You're not going to like some of what comes. Some of it's going to feel sketchy. And you'll think, can that be true? We're looking for something that's adequate. Um, and then because we're faithful people and want to love this book in front of us, we want to make sure whatever we come up with makes good use of Scripture. You're going to want, for folks who just came in, there's a yellow handout here if you could hand it back to them. That'd be great. We're talking about the emergence of Israel. If I was to ask you, how did our country get started? What happened to start our country? You're chuckling because it's a loaded question. Uh, I know the answer I would have given 40 years ago. I know the answer I would have given, it didn't change for a long time, 55 years ago from early days in elementary school, right? Well, we came over on ships, the Mayflower, and we came, and uh, Eddie Izzard does a hilarious version of this, landing at Plymouth Rock and saying, what a coincidence, Plymouth Rock, and look, we left from Plymouth, hey! You know, which is to say, the story we tell hides our presupposition intentionally. The story we tell often is designed to keep secret what my political agenda is. Nowadays, how was your, how did you, was your Columbus Day a little different than it was 10 years ago, the other day? <laughs> 20, 50 years ago? We start to say, okay, wait a minute, there were actually people here, and they were actually civilized in really important ways. Uh, it wasn't so much, we've come, da -da -da -da, and now we're starting. And so we pay attention to our presuppositions. Uh, if modernity is saying, you know what, you have some presuppositions in how you design this mythology of how you got here, what our identity is. Post-modernity is not only that, but your presuppositions are different than yours. Let's talk about why that is true. And let's lift up that, all that piece. All right, so here's the setting. If you had a Bible, you'd look and joy in your, in, in your maps in the back. I need a uh, Let's see, someone read Joshua 10, 40. Now we're into shorter sections. Go down to Joshua 10, 40 to 42. And if someone else would pick up Joshua 11 and look at 16, I might do that because there must be something else I had in there. We're just outside of our Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Joshua, Judges, Ruth are where these next books are. Joshua and Judges, especially describing this in-between time of having some kind of unity? How do we move into the land? How do we end up with power? 
Who's got uh, Joshua 10? I won't, let's see. Uh, yeah, yeah, here, yeah, exactly. 40 through 42, if you would. Um, so Joshua subdued the whole region, including the hill country, the Negev, the western foothills, and the... Mm -mm. Strange word? Yeah, it was... It was the, the western foothills and the mountain slopes, together with all their kings... He left no survivors. He totally destroyed all who breathed, just as the Lord, the God of Israel, had commanded. All right, we can stop there because that's the short version of what you just had in Joshua. Joshua came in, and if we had a map of it, what we'd call Israel today, Palestine, that region, that's where we are. Some of the uh, passages will have more defined um, uh, river names, mountain ranges, but that's where we are. Here's the punchline at the end. Joshua came in, killed every living thing just like God said to. That's quite a phenomenal wrap-up, right? Um, and can we go to 11? Let me, let me take this because I must have some the following piece. Here's 16. So Joshua took all that land the hill country, and all the Negev, and all the land of Goshen, and the lowland, and the Arabah, and the hill country of Israel and its lowland. From Mount Halak, oh, here's the definitions, which rises towards Seir as far as Balgad, in the valley of Lebanon, below Mount Hermon. He took all their kings, struck them down, put them to death. Joshua made war a long time with all those kings. There was not a town that, there was not a town that made peace with the Israelites, except the Hivites, the inhabitants of Gibeon, all were taken in battle. For it was the Lord's doing. Um, here's what we're looking for. Violence, warfare in this region. If you're looking at a time, by the way, you might have in your Bible as well a timeline, and depending on how old your Bible is, it might have different times. But here's what the best historians and archeologists, etc., say, say now about when this would have happened. About 1700 before the Common Era, uh, Babylon rose. That's to the east of our concern here. We know that because um, villages, cities get wiped out and then get rebuilt with greater fortifications. As you dig through the rubble, you can find as you're working your way up to current day. Uh, they have both carbon dating, ash, they pay attention to the pottery shards they find and how sophisticated that pottery is. Um, and find here this all this rubble beat down and now it gets redone. Ooh, and look how great this pottery is. More finely done, greater culture, uh, bigger picture civilizations. About 1500 in contrast, Egypt starts to grow and warfare changes. And they see that because the cities get thicker walls. Weapons start being used. And by the way, lest you forget how primitive this is, we're just this side of the Stone Age, meaning the weapons they have are not sticks with stone tips. We're starting to learn how to smelt and come into the Iron Age. In this case, the Bronze Age, not quite as strong as the Iron Age. But that first piece of, hey, we figured out if we make a fire and put certain kinds of rocks into it, what comes out is really, once it cools, really helpful and forms for weapons, for axles. 
um, for shields, it changes dramatically. But that's where we are 3,000 years ago. All right? Okay, here's the, here's the hardest thing you're going to hear this morning. <laughs> there's, uh, there's no extra biblical evidence of the Hebrew children in Egypt. All right? I, I, if I was your pastor longer, I loved the book of Genesis. I want to talk about all our backgrounds, how we got here. The problem is we have no record of it whatsoever outside of the story that was written in about a thousand. There's one verse, literally, about the existence of the Hebrew children outside of this book we love. And it's, and it's this. Um, Pharaoh Merneptah, and he's about 1220, so this really helps with our timeline. He writes uh, a victory hymn. You see I'm in three here. Uh, a victory hymn including uh, taking of a small group. And what he says is, Israel is laid waste. His seed is no more. That's it. <laughs> That's it. That's not quite what you and I want to hear as celebrating Israel as this great earth-changing movement of God's people. Uh, the fact is we're hardly noticeable at this point on the world stage. We get noticed. You can imagine this. Uh, who writes history as the victors? Who writes are those who are educated enough to write? And the records from this time tend to be uh, legal documents, shipping documents. We worked with this tribe of these people over here and they shipped up this much oil. We paid them this much or bartered this much. We have lots of that. Not a lot of old poetry, novels. Think about, uh, holy cow, our earliest novels, uh, Homer's work is, is 500 years after this. Um, we don't have that sense really of independent story making. We do in China, as a matter of fact. They precede us by centuries. But our story, if it, we call it that, uh, starts in 1200 uh, being wiped out by the king, the pharaoh. Absolutely. No, jumping now, yeah. What would a Jew's response be to there is no history of Israelites in Egypt? Uh, it depends on which Jew you ask. If you ask a Jew who's been to seminary, a rabbi would know all this. This, this has been conventional wisdom for, like I said, 50 years in mainline, old line, Presbyterian, Episcopal, Methodist, Catholic even. Uh, they do some good scholarship as well, of course. It doesn't find its way into congregations very well. Uh, and rabbis would say the same thing. Um, depending on what Jewish seminary they went to, I suspect, right? Um, how much they're versed in historical critical reading of the text. We're going to get to, yeah, 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 we'll get to the numbers in a minute here. Uh, here's something, I'm on 3B. And so we have tax records, the scribal, the trade records, and, and none of those do we find people talking about Moses, uh, people talking about Abraham. Uh, these extra biblical, outside the Bible uh, records don't include those characters. In our story, we do have Abraham talking about where he comes from, Ur in Chaldea, it's off to the east, Ur in Chaldea. And we would want to put that timeline centuries before 
If you're keeping track of where we are in the Bible, uh, centuries before, back in Genesis, Abraham comes before we spend 400 years down. In, I should have a big timeline up here. Before we spend 400 years down in Egypt, there's the patriarchs and Abraham described in Genesis. What's interesting, and that would put us back 16, 1700 BC, um, BCE, the name Ur and Chaldea, it wasn't named that until the 900s. Think about this for a second. If I'm writing a story about Castle Rock, and I say, 100 years ago, 100 years ago, there was nothing but Native Americans here. Oh, let's go 200 years, because I don't know my history very well, but I'm sure 200 years is safe. And the Native Americans were walking around, and they came upon Sedalia, and they came upon Louvier. Is that how you say it? Levere. Um, and they came upon Louvere, she'd say, hang on, they did no such thing. Those are names that have come about only in the last 50, 100 years. You're doing a, a retrospective. You're telling your story from your standpoint. This is the Old Testament too. Abraham came out of Castle Rock. And we say, well, I get you're talking about the place next to the big rock. Uh, but that's a very, it lets you know when that story is being told, right? It's not Abraham telling that story. It's not people 200, 400 years after him telling that story. In our case, it's King David telling that story in a thousand before the common era. So we've got to listen for names of places. Uh, they tell us a lot. Yeah. Uh huh. Something that happened 700 years ago. I have no clue what happened 70 years, 700 years ago. <laughs> Even if I've done sure. exhaustive research, so then it becomes a nice story about what I think might have happened. Sarah, that's a great point. And yes, uh, against the uh, inerrancy of Scripture would be this piece of shifted timelines and recognizing that uh, we wouldn't be able to agree on a story that happened seven years ago, you all, you all can't uh, agree on a story from five or six years ago with the vote on uh, same-gender marriage. Uh, so 70 years ago would be quite a story we'd come up with, and any version you tell me would tell at least as much about you and your different version about you, what you want to remember. And so we're not saying the Bible is useless. I love it and it's precious. But yes, it's telling us something else about the people who are telling the story. And indeed, much of what we consider as Old Testament history is in fact King David's court telling that story for some very specific reasons. That's what a critical reading of the text requires. Why is King David in those... Early, let's go back to Genesis uh, 4, where Cain and Abel, 3... Um, the great suspicion of cities uh, and the great lifting up who murders who is a story that King David wants told about how hard it is to not have your own city and why we should be so suspect of those folks going into the cities. They're murderers. It's because he's gathering a bunch of shepherds around to say, we have a right to this land. We want to have an identity. How can we get together and fight against our new pharaoh in a thousand? Um, those agendas very much shape that ancient, ancient history. Tower of Babel. There's, a, there's, a, uh, there's an anti-urban, pro-shepherd, this goes right to the Christmas story, pro-shepherd bias, 
pro-ranching bias throughout the Old and New Testament. We're very suspect of those who have their power and hide behind their walls and frankly make our lives very difficult. And so we see it in how those stories are told. Yeah? So the books of the Bible were written by what people, right? <laughs> and people are fallible, right? Exactly, exactly. But I've also heard that it was inspired by God. That's so, our, yes. So what is that? I love it. Uh, do we do a prayer of inspiration here? We tend to not to. We're in a worshipful space, and we lift up scripture, and it comes in often creative ways, which I really love. Many churches I've served or known about have a prayer of inspiration ahead of time. Uh, May the words in my mouth and the meditation of all our hearts be acceptable to you, and then we read the text. Or at Genesis for the last 15 years, we've had uh, um, ancient words ever true, changing me, changing you. We have a little uh, sung prayer that acknowledges this is an old text. We need help interpreting it. And when that happens, we believe your inspiration, God, comes through us even today. And that's why it's worth reading. It's a, it's a beautiful affirmation, I believe, that inspiration piece. When we say unique and authoritative, and then we say, yeah, it's God-inspired. It's an important distinction. It's a risky distinction. <laughs> yeah, Nick? Can you repeat why you're messing up our certainty? <laughs> <laughs> this is that's a definition of my career, I feel like. <laughs> This will become evident. Uh, I can answer that better by looking at a very murderous story that I think is directly related to conservative Christianity and Christian nationalism and one of the most evil forces in our world today. If God is only on our side and we're called to kill everyone else, I want out. I want out and you shouldn't have Christ or Christian on your lips either. I get why we told, I get what our certainty has done. I need certainty. Come on. I'm, I'm scary as hell preaching that sermon, that, those few minutes in there. I didn't sleep well last night. Jordan this morning in worship reached over and touched my leg, I think because he was sick of me. I fidget a lot and my hands get sweaty. And he said, um, are you nervous? And I said, yeah. And then he, he, we're trying to talk while worship is going on. And he said, why? Uh, the... What did he ask, the setting, or he says, the content? And I says, the content. And then I wipe my hand on his sleeve. <laughs> it's scary preaching uncertainty because no one wants to hear it. I don't want to hear it either. Um, it's really important so that we have an appropriate God-given humility. Uh, in this pluralist age, illiberal religion is a huge danger, and we play into it all the time. We need to do better. Let's look, because we've got 15 minutes. This will be fun. About why I'm disrupting your certainty. Oh, let's, 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 we're on three. All would agree. Here's this destruction of a small band. Scribal tax. Uh, Abraham, yes. Oh, this. Um, there's hapiru. You see that word there? The, again, darn them, the vowel, the huh, is not even in the word that's printed. We don't know for sure. Some are going to tell me. Some historians will say, you don't know anything you're talking about, Don. We don't even know if that hapiru is the same as the Hebrews. Well, I get that it sounds a lot the same, but we don't know for sure, and we don't. Uh, but we're assuming, and might be wrong, uh, that this band of Hebrews is who we get quoted uh, elsewhere and what is the same thing. 
Archaeologically, here's what, here's what the truth is. Archaeologically, there is revealed to be sort of a relatively sudden rise of village settlements in the highlands at the start of the Iron Age. That if, what's the proof that you even have, the Jews? That's some of the only proof we have, is that Palestine is gorgeous because it's, uh, I should have brought a map. All sorts of trade goes through there for some really good reason at the eastern side of the Mediterranean Sea. In the flats has always been wonderful farmland, which is a great place to raise people, except that everyone wants to do it. And all the trade routes from the north and from the east have to come to Egypt that way because of how the mountains are. So there's constant soldiers and trade. And now what, you want rent for this road and you're going to stop. I got to pay to get my, ship, my stuff through. So it's a conflicted area and has been forever, or at least for three 3,500 years, um, and still today, uh, because it's so valuable. The flat farmland gives way to mountainous, nasty, rocky. The Holy Land is not a pretty place. It is in Galilee. <laughs> let's, go, let's go walk the feet of Jesus and in the greens. It's gorgeous and lovely. And then just a few miles east, just wasteland, Jesus in the desert, Moses wandering around. Uh, you, you can't live there. It's just rocky and nothing grows. What they find is, oh, look at these villages that have, uh, we do our archaeological stuff. They weren't there in 1300. They were there in 1200, 1100. And then, of course, they weren't again uh, in some cases. A relatively sudden rise of the number of villages. Why would that be? Um, I'll tell you later. One of the reasons is the Iron Age uh, has, oh, this is too technical. Uh, the crossbow was a famous, useful weapon. Uh, but had a certain distance until they could melt iron and put it in the bow. And now my distance and accuracy is greatly improved. And now I can mount it on a chariot that has metal axles and is suddenly rigorous and just a weaponry went from here to here with the Iron Age. And we went from decent farmland up into the mountains where they couldn't drive their chariots, where we were safer and we were smaller and pretty insignificant and struggled. Our history starts with David, not a king yet, gathering a bunch of bandits around him, coming out of the highlands, doing guerrilla warfare, trying to get our start. Here is the model. Um, here's the model I was raised with, and we just read a review of it, where we lucky Jews uh, had God on our side, and we came out of the desert, uh, and God helped us kill everyone. Um, and that's how we got our start. Here's what we know. Oh, let, let's go here. Let's turn to Numbers. See those two texts under the, the model. By the way, I hope this is okay. This is not a story about how we got here. This is a, this is a class about lifting up theories. <laughs> this is a class that's going to lift up three or four models of understanding. And you're going to have to decide which one you find most compelling most biblical, does justice to the text we have, and has the best theological, practical application. And I don't know how you balance those. Because we're not just historians. If we were just academics, that'd be one thing. We come one, we're believers who lift up the Judeo-Christian tradition and have it to do how we live our lives today. And so it matters what we come up with. But that also colors but I'm saying, I'm about to explain to you why I hate the conquest model and why I think it's no good. And you're going to say, that's just because he is a peacemonger. He likes loving everybody. He doesn't believe in a God that would kill anyone. Uh, yeah, that's right. Um, it's coloring 
It's making me very subjective in my analysis historically. Numbers 20, 14 to 21. Deuteronomy Numbers. Here's a book you've never read, and I can't recommend it. Uh, numbers 20, 14. I'm just going to read this because I don't know, can't remember why I have this as an item. This is keeping track of who's who. Numbers chapter 20, 14 to 21. Let me read this to you. Moses sent messengers from Kadesh to the king of Edom. Thus says your brother Israel, you know all the adversity that has befallen us, how our ancestors went down to Egypt and we lived in Egypt a long time and the Egyptians oppressed us and our ancestors and when we cried to the Lord, he heard our voice and sent an angel and brought us out of Egypt and here we are in Kadesh, a town on the edge of your territory. I love it. Here's our first political piece of we're about to come into your land. Uh, you heard our woe is us story. God, da, da, da. Now let us pass through your land. We will not pass through field or vineyard or drink water from any well. We will go along the king's highway. This is a trade route that everyone used. Not turning aside to the right hand or to the left until we have passed through your territory. Uh, a great model of, of how to get along. But Edom said to him, you shall not pass through, or we will come out with a sword against you. The Israelites said to him, we will stay on the highway, and if we drink your water, we are our, now that's changed a little bit, if we do drink your water, uh, then we will pay you for it. It's only a small matter, just let us pass through on foot. But he said, you shall not pass through. And Edom came out against them with a large force, heavily armed. Thus Edom refused to give Israel passage through their territory. So Israel turned away from them. Uh, failure to negotiate to get where we wanted to go, little different than the previous story of Joshua came through and slaughtered everyone and we took the land. Uh, we get some real practical pieces. Let's see, uh, let me jump down to 14, previous 44 to 45. This is all just setting up some of the conflict. But they presumed to go up to the heights of the hill country, even though the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord and Moses had not left the camp. Is this where I want to be? Then the uh, Amalekites and the Canaanites who lived in the hill country came down and defeated them, pursuing them as far as Hormah. So yes, both we are going into the hill country to try to set up some villages and be our good uh, El Shaddai worshiping people, and we're having some conflict uh, with locals at the same time. So my first point here, the theological implications, historical use and abuse. Did God give us Jews the land? Uh, depending on your rabbis, they, they'd say like me, uh, of course, that's our identity. God chose us out of Egypt and this land is given to us. And luckily the U.S. bought into that in 1948 and helped us uh, claim it as our own and fought again in 1967 and have kept on killing Christians since then in Palestinians because God gave us this land, right? And what a horrible story. And you'll find, um, I don't know how you describe them, other historical or mainline or liberal rabbis who would say, yeah, that's the worst part of our tradition. We got a problem. This does not lead to peace in the Middle East. This is the core of our theological offense and why the world is against us, our arrogance, are assuming that our religion is more important than anybody else's. 
um, did God give us the land? Here's, a, and we'll finish with this. We'll get just a little into conquest here. We do have archaeological evidence, and now we can put all our theology away and our history away. Just get the archaeologist to say, look, I've been there. I've been digging around for years. Here's what I've found. We find destruction of cities around this time, and this would be 1100, something like this, especially at Bethel and Dubor, that they are destroyed and then reoccupied with no fortifications. And I mentioned this before. Uh, they were destroyed, and then what happened later was not great, not as sophisticated, not great pottery, uh, not a lot of trade, a smaller group, uh, not as established civilization. And it keeps on turning over. And even with that, there's burn marks in the stone, and this town gets destroyed still, etc. And now this is, oh, this, oh, we're a little ahead. This is helpful. This is strange. Uh, so they're digging through and they find tombs. And of those skeletons, a third are children. All right? That's astounding. It's a really hard time to be born, period. Um, it may be mass uh, famine. It may be diseases. 50% under 18 and I don't know how they do this, they can tell who died. Well, because they found the skeletons, there's no stab marks, there's nothing broken. This is a human being who has died of something else. It may be that those burn marks, this is what you do. We've, we're coming into our tribe, and here's a place that's got overrun by whoever, or a disease, and there's bodies around. What do we do? We're going to dig a pit, throw the bodies, and we're going to burn the whole place. We're going to knock down some piece that we're afraid or diseased. We're going to start a new. So we're not sure this is a military violent event necessarily. We know there's lots of death and turnover. Did Egypt destroy these cities? We know time-wise uh, this, is, this is about our end in another hundred years as well. The problem is the bigger communities, civilizations come and reclaim the land. Um, was Egypt destroying these? So here's this. Uh, look at, I'm on 2D. This is a, I, I don't know where I found this figure. If you're reading in your text, I, how, do you know how many it lists coming out of the, in the Exodus? Coming out of Egypt, wandering in the desert? Uh, 600,000. Uh, and that pen has served its time. Uh, 600,000 is what the Bible says. What's, what's weird about that figure is if it's 12 or 7 or 3, then I'm thinking theological things. Frankly, if it was Revelation, it was 666. We'd have something to go. 600,000 is astounding, and no one believes it. Um, the entire population, because they do know this, of the Nile Delta region at that time was about 1.2 million. And so to have no record of half the population leaving, do you know what that does to trade? Absolutely decimates. To have no record of the Egyptian pharaoh saying, we still haven't recovered from losing our entire slave force, not even that. So historians don't know what to make of the number other than to say there must be something going on here. We don't know what it is. 
We don't know. We have no good answer. Uh, we have no evidence of such a crowd of a hundredth of that even in the desert. Burn, camp, very fragile environments, as you know, that leave marks forever. Nothing like that. And frankly, others would just say flat out, newsflash, you can't survive in the desert. There is no water. Now, I know we just got done water from the rock and manna and our miracle stories. I'm going to invite you to carry those close to your heart and just a little off to the side as we play historians first here. Well, what's the story we're telling? What's the theological implications of the story? What are we trying to teach with these stories? Let's see, anyone here been to Jericho? I got to go to Jericho. If you've been in the Holy Land, probably your tour often takes you to Jericho. It's one of the oldest civilizations uh, on the planet. You go and there's a, this, a, a pit the size of this room in diameter that goes way up 50, 100 feet down, and there's a chain link fence so you can look down at the different striations, the layers, and they're flagged. And if you have a tour guide, he'll tell you, well, they started digging here at this time. And of course, as you dig, you're going back in time, right? A little counterintuitive, but rocks get piled on, things get destroyed, and they build on top of that. And so they can make a great deal of history from Jericho. Uh, wonderful to be there. Um, I think we get to this later because it, it's too much. Oh, we're done. Uh, what they find is, uh, as in Joshua fit the battle of, in this time, 1100, give or take, um, Jericho was there. Wonderful. It had been settled and destroyed any number of times, a dozen times through the years. It dates back to 7000 BCE. That's why it's about the oldest civilization we know of. Um, and in 1100, uh, it was empty. It had been destroyed about two or 300 years earlier. Here's the burn marks, here's the rubble, and then resettled in 800, 700. Um, Jericho may be a great model of how we got here. I know you know the story of, uh, I know you know the story of the priests leading the procession and the horns and the soldiers. How many times did they walk around? Good, seven good biblical number. And what'd they do? Made noise and the walls fell down. Yeah. Um, so archeologists are saying, yeah, those walls were already down. And then historians are saying, um, look, I appreciate you got an army. The one thing you're not gonna do is put the guy wearing the robe in front. <laughs> you're gonna put some soldiers in front and you're going to let people behind. And then, oh, this is beautiful. Someone said, for the life of me, you know what this sounds like? It sounds like what we sometimes do at New Hope when we have a procession. That's when the guy in the robe gets to go up front. Or all the Catholics said, we do this every week in the Episcopals. you kidding? At the head of the, before we read the scripture. That's when we put the guy with the robes and he's got kids with him. And they're carrying a cross. And now, seven times? That's a the. Some have said, you know what this sounds like for the life of me? It sounds like a celebration, a rowdy worship celebration, celebrating the power of God, that God has delivered this wonderful ruins into our keeping. Could you start building that wall again so we have a place to live? The role of our worshiping community and history, the violent underground coursing river of violence and death uh, that 
colors much of our storytelling. And then historians saying, you might not have all of that right, uh, but we get the role it plays in you appreciating the wonderful things our almighty God has done to give us a place to live. More next week on how those stories come together. And you either take this or leave them here, I don't care. Uh, but we get to uh, revolution, which is a lot of fun to think about, especially as Americans, since that's how we got our start. And then some, some really remarkable, uh, subtle models of what might have been going on in that 1,100 before the Common Era um, piece. By the way, academics no longer use BCAD. That offends us because we want everything to be Anno Domini in the name of our Lord. Even to say that is to name our remarkance uh, and our egocentrism to say, my version of faith has to be the deciding point in history. And I don't care what your faith is, all y'all got to describe your stories on my timeline. The only Christian thing to do is to say, all right, contemporary era and before the contemporary era. Okay, okay. That hurts. Big swallow. I can be a big boy get along with the academics and, oh yeah, the rest of the world. Um, it's not easy being faithful Christians and being loving, being Jesus-like as we describe our story of how we got here. Thanks.